1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network series of podcasts. Uh, I'm on the channel today with Nancy Sinkoff, professor at Rutgers University, and we're actually talking about Eastern European and Jewish history together all at once uh, in her new book, which is an intellectual biography, the first comprehensive one of the historian Lucy S. Davidovich. Called From Left to Right, Lucy S. Davidovich, The New York Intellectuals and the Politics of Jewish History. This is a book which is just released and published by Wayne State University Press in 2020. Welcome to our podcast, Nancy.
2: Thank you, Stephen. So happy to be here or be in
1: cyberspace, whatever we're doing. I think, I think we're in the virtual world here, but the virtual world of actual history. So uh, let me read your bio. Uh, Nancy Sinkoff is the academic director of the Bildner Center for the Study of Jewish Life, and she's an associate professor of Jewish studies and, Rutgers, uh, at his, and history at Rutgers New Brunswick. Um, her specializations are in early modern and modern Jewish history, East European Jewish intellectual history, both in the Polish heartland and in its diasporic settlements, the Enlightenment, politics, and gender. Uh, and her books include, for instance, Out of the Shtetl. Making Jews Modern in the Polish Borderlands, published in 2004, which has uh, recently been reissued digitally with a new preface by Brown University's Judaic Studies series, an excellent series. Um, And Nancy has received many numerous fellowships from the Mellon Foundation, from Fulbright, from the ACLS, and so on. In 2016, 2017, she was the Elizabeth J. Dilworth Professor in Historical Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University. So I'm really excited to um, hear Professor Sinkoff about Lucy Davidovich, who is is such an important historian and and never uncontroversial. Um, And I want to start with the first question, really, which is more about you, than about um, Lucy Davidovich, and and that is you mentioned reading her memoir way back in 1989, uh, and and you were actually very much involved in the reissuance of her memoir in 2008. So how how does her career, her life, her works, her letters track with your own intellectual journey?
2: Well, thank thanks for the question. Um... You know, I think that's always a big one for historians. You know, do we choose our subjects, or do they choose us? And trying to really suss that out is complicated in many ways. I this sounds perhaps odd to speak as a rational historian, but I think that in this case, this I was kind of meant to do this book. Um, I've always my work has always focused on the intellectual and cultural responses of the Jews of Eastern Europe through the modern period, that's that what has guided every everything I've written. And that's a big, big topic. Um, it begins with the Enlightenment, with the late 18th century, when the Jew, when Poland is partitioned, and the majority of the Jews of Europe or Polish Jews are thrust into an encounter with the modern state, both imperial and then sometimes the nation state, and begin this long process as yet unresolved and unfinished, in becoming moderns and becoming modern Europeans. And then later, with the migrations and challenges to the 20th century, modern Americans and modern uh, Palestinian Jews and then Israeli Jews and modern Soviet Jews. So that's that's the arc of modern East European Jewish history. And that has always been what has motivated my historical research. So this book, which is an intellectual cultural biography of Lucy Davidovich, is in fact for me, yet another exploration of of those very big questions, which is how do Jews from the East European uh, heartland become modern? And in her case, it's in the 20th century, but the questions that I believe her life tries to address, the life that she lived and she thought about, and the context around her are the same kinds of questions that have motivated my work as a historian when I looked at the 18th century. And those questions, and there are others, but some of the most enduring ones are, what is the relationship to Jewish identity, to Jewish languages, and particularly to Yiddish, which was the vernacular of the, of the Jews of Eastern Europe, and the vernacular of Jews in the East European Jewish diasporas, whether they lived in South Africa, Buenos Aires, Winnipeg, New York, uh, Paris, you know, the Pletzel, wherever they lived, the Jews of Eastern Europe brought their language. So that's one question. The other is what? How does modernity um, create political vulnerability for Jews in new ways? Already, at the end of the 18th century, and how do Jews respond politically to no longer living under noble patronage or under the uh, protection of a king? Right now, they're part of the evolution of modern state building and politics, be it imperial or nation-state democratic politics. And where did Jews fit in? The new politics and how do they understand their own political evolution? So that's a again enduring question dating from the late 18th century to the present How do Jews maintain a sense of groupness funny word or collective identity or nationalism with a lowercase n right? How do Jews retain? their sense of a cohesive group identity in societies where the structure of politics and life uh, privilege individualism and the unhinging of collective ties. That's, again, an enduring question. What is the role of traditional Jewish life, of Judaism, in the shaping of modern Jewish identity? What, what does one hold onto? What does one discard as one becomes modern? So all of those questions, and there are probably a few others that I could throw in, but for the sake of time, I won't. In my mind, those are the questions of modern Jewish life. They continue today, regardless of the creation of a sovereign nation state in the Middle East, regardless of the efflorescence of Jewish life in the United States, these are still, to my mind, the enduring questions that any Jewish intellectual or someone thinking about Jewish life in ideological intellectual terms is going to grapple with. And so, Lucy Davidovich was a perfect vehicle for me to get at that question, at those questions, um, and that's why I wrote her biography. So it's less. It is about her, but it's about how she grappled with those questions in a pre- and then a post-genocidal, you know, the post-Holocaust world in the United States. So um, those are the questions that always spoke to me, and she was my way to get into them in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, and and I want to pick up on many of these questions. I hope we can cover as many um, of these seminal questions as possible, because they really do get to the heart not only of Jewish history and Jewish intellectual life, but also the 20th century. So let me start with the pre-genocidal period, her life before the Shoah. Um, what was her life like in interwar Eastern Europe as, as a Yiddishist and as the wartime researcher um, before she got married, Lucy Schildkret? What, what did she do and, and what was her, let's say, intellectual and political milieu like?
2: So, I think that, you know, you you said it quietly, but it's pretty important. She, this woman does not become Lucy S. Davidovich until 1948. So, she's already 33 years old. So, I think that's, it's actually, it's not just a, a hook, it's actually true. The Polish name that sort of defines her um, as the voice of the destroyed culture of Polish Jewry is a name that she gets only when she marries her husband, Shimon Davidovich, who was indeed a Warsaw-born Yiddishist um, and he was a refugee, he left in 1940, he was a Bundist. he was politically on the left, and she meets him in the interwar year, uh, excuse me she, me, she meets him during the war years, I'll get to that in a second, and then marries him when she comes back from her second sojourn in Europe. So that's important. Until From 1915 until 1948, she's someone else, if you will, she is Lucy Shildkate, or by the, her Yiddish name, she's Liba Shildkate. And so, the milieu in which she is raised is the milieu of immigrant New York, East European immigrant New York, and Yiddish culture. And the the book tries the book positions her in converse, in historical conversation with the famous male Jewish intellectuals, New York intellectuals, many of whose names are far better known than hers. People like Irving Kristol, Norman Podhoretz, Nathan Glazer, Lionel Trilling, um, Irving Howe, Alfred Kazin, Milton Himmelfarb to some degree. I position her in conversation with them, but someone who grappled with questions of Jewish political uh, liberalism and leftism Uh, was involved with the emergence of neoconservatism, uh, creation of Holocaust consciousness, reflecting on cosmopolitanism, all these major questions of Jewish integrationism in the 20th century. But she's distinct from them. And this is part of the milieu question. She's distinct from them by two very seminal features. One is that she's a woman or she's a girl. So her trajectory as a public figure is gendered, is shaped by the gender constraints that informed women's lives in the 20th century. That's A. And B, and as important, is that she's actually educated as a Yiddishist. So she's not merely someone, and I'm not dismissing those people, but she's not someone who absorbed immigrant culture just because it's around her, um, sort of in a passive way. Her parents chose to send her to a supplementary Yiddish school, which was affiliated with something called the Sholem Alechem Folk Institute. There were four supplementary Yiddish school movements in the interwarriors in New York. Three of them were quite ideological. One was associated with the Zionists, it's called the Falband. The other was associated with the socialist movement, that's called the, it was the Albert El Ring, the Workman's Circle. And the third was associated with the communists after the break with the socialists in 1921, and that was called the International Albata Alden or the IWO. And all of these groups, particularly the Albata Ling and the IWO, had a whole network of institutions that we would now call secular ethnic institutions. They were schools for their children, credit associations, summer camp, orchestras, a press. And all in the vernacular language of the Jews of Eastern Europe—that is Yiddish. The Sholom Alechem Folk Institute was nonpartisan. It was established in reaction to the harnessing of ideology to Yiddish culture or to Yiddishism. So it was ideologically what we call diaspora nationalism, and that is a movement that was again born in Eastern Europe in the imperial context, which argues that Jews are a nation, Jews are a people, and they have the right to demand group rights in an imperial context, and those group rights include language, education, and culture. So those were the that's the diaspora nationalism of the Sholom Aleichem Folk Institute, and she was educated in that movement. That meant after school, after going to elementary school, she went to a Yiddish school called a Shula. On the weekends in high school, she went down to Union Square from the Bronx to go to the middle school, the high school. And she went to the summer camp, and she was a counselor there. And the the camp was called Camp Boiberik, which was named after a, uh, a place in Sholem Aleichem's fiction. And Camp Boiberik, in her years, was completely in Yiddish, right? This is a summer camp where kids spoke, danced, laughed, you know, and had romances all in Yiddish. So this shapes her, and she chooses to have it part of her life. And I think that that makes her very distinct from this other group, this male, it happened to be men, the male group of New York uh, intellectuals for whom Yiddish culture was much more passive. Irving Howe is the uh, outlier there, and we can talk about him perhaps if there's time, but for the rest of them, Bell and Glazer, and, they don't really, they're not cultivating Yiddish culture in the interwar years. She is, and then she makes the fateful decision encouraged by the great Polish-Jewish historian, Yakov Szatzky, who is an immigrant and teaching in his spare time in this Yiddish school movement, she makes the faithful decision to become a research fellow at the YIVO Institute, the Yiddish Wissenschaftliche Institute in Vilna, Poland, which is in the borders of interwar Poland. And she goes there to be associated with the YIVO, to be a graduate fellow and to be in a cohort of young people studying Yiddish culture, Yiddish language, Yiddish philology, linguistics, anthropology, Less history, that was based more in Warsaw, but she was interested in history. And the central figure there is someone named Max Weinreich. And Max Weinreich is a Yiddish linguist, and he is really the head of the Tour, that's the research fellowship, and really the person with Zelig Kalmanovich, another YIVO activist, to become absolutely central to her identity as she emerges um, as what you know in training as a Yiddish intellectual, but she's an American, and that means her experience in Vilna from 1938 to 1939 is always shaped by the fact that she has an out. Right, she has an American passport. So while the drums of war are are um, beating, although no one knew, no one knew what would what this war would mean when the Germans uh, invaded in September 1st, 1939, and then when the Soviets moved in from the east on September 17th of the same year, same month, no one knew what it would mean. But once the Hitler-Stalin pact was signed, the American government sent out a letter to nationals abroad and said, you really you need to come home. There's going to be a war. And her friends also pushed her and said, go. You're an American. You don't know what it's like to be here. We've lived through a war. So she takes a rather harrowing and rather historically amazing train trip from Vilna to Warsaw to Berlin, which is now completely under Nazi control, to Copenhagen and gets back to the United States. And then during the war, she worked at the New York YIVO, and there's a whole story there, but this is a branch of the Vilna institution, and it is a skeletal institution, but Max Weinreich, whom I mentioned before, has also gotten out. So he does everything to maintain the YIVO and to sort of shift its locus to New York. And there are many refugee scholars who are extremely important, who get out and also inhabit the world of the New York YIVO. People like Elias Cherikova, Rafa Mahler had come earlier. Shimon uh, Shimon Davidovich, excuse me, her future husband, gets out. He's a bundist, he's a copy editor at the YIVO and a whole host of other people. And she ends up working at the YIVO as Max Weinreich's secretary during the war. And this means, and this is quite important, that as part of the American Jewish community that's uh, reading and writing in Yiddish, they are more aware than most Americans of what's going on in Eastern Europe because they are still getting letters from loved ones and family, and, and they have people on the ground, even the Jewish left and the... The Jewish Labor Bund, who are sending information as long as they can about what's happening to the Jews of Eastern Europe, and so they're much more aware than everyone else of what's going on. And um, yeah, yeah, she, I, she relates this. Sorry. I'm sorry. So she relates this. She she's her milieu is completely tied now. That's I think what's important, tied to the fate of East European Jewry in ways that many other people are not. And then she goes back to Europe. But go ahead, pose your question. I can continue. No, I'm,
1: about I'm, I'm struck by um, in, in your biography um, by her American and American Jewish identity because the emigre culture in New York, especially, is just so strong. There's the Frankfurt School. There's the reading of Hannah Arendt. The Origins of Totalitarianism is published, I believe, in 1951. And she has a, a quite a different trajectory, right? Because as an immigrant, born in 1915, she went to Eastern Europe just before the war broke out. And then she becomes institutionally um, involved and intellectually involved both with YIVO um, and the American Jewish Committee in in the 1950s. So I want to sort of lead into the next question, which really is after this this formative period from 1939 to 1948 ends. Um, Could you mention her work institutionally both with YIVO and, and with the AJC, how, how is this important in her life and, and how does she so in turn I, I impact? Absol-
2: I absolutely, I absolutely will. I just want to mention one sort of the 18 months after the war, cause that's um, very important. That book ends the, uh, just also in terms of a plug about how I wrote the book, I wrote this book as a transnational biography and we're, we're often thinking about transnationality in one direction, sort of from some place of origin to America, but what I try to argue in this book is that transnationality goes both ways right so she she is born in an immigrant family and goes to Eastern Europe, comes back to the United States, goes back to to German lands, and comes back to the United States. So her transnationality is like, is, is two way, is two side, two streeted, you know, whatever the expression is. It's, it's two ways. And I think that we need to think more about that, about intellect. And I know this colleagues who've written on African-American history, you know, uh, you know, civil rights activists who go to Ghana, you know, it changes you to go to these places. Um, it affects the way you read the history of your own homeland. I would, I argue in the latter part of the book this is going off into another tangent, forgive me, but that she sort of misreads America because of her East European-ness later in in her life. But getting back to um, what I wanted to mention. So after when, you know, so in 1943, and this is very significant, you know, the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto, you know, she, everyone at Ivo, you can imagine what it was like for them. Shimon Davidovich, her future husband, had a wife and two children. His daughter was a ghetto fighter. You know, and, and they realized that they had all perished. And th- there's an important beginnings of this commemorative process, which people don't realize already during the war. People who, it, Yiddishists and Jews from Eastern Europe were aware of what has happened. They already are starting to to commemorate what they called was the Horbin, right? The, the, the destruction. She goes back to Europe to work with the Joint Distribution Committee. And this in some ways is gonna play uh, a link into the American Jewish Committee work because the joint is the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. And it was formed already from uh, um, much earlier during World War One, And it's a, tra- it's a global Jewish uh, help organization. And um, when she gets to the American-occupied zone of post-war Germany, she's working with a whole host of uh, many women, actually, very interesting, from all over the Jewish world who've come to help the refugees. And this is a very important uh, part of her life because she, first of all, has the direct encounter with survivors, some of whom are Polish Jews who have survived in hiding, some of them been through the camps, some of them were in Siberia. Um, and also she, her, she's working under the auspices of an, sort of an official NGO in the American zone, which means she's almost like a civilian army person, you know, sort of a lay army. You know, she's got a uniform. It's all very uh, structured. So she's not inducted into the army like men were, uh, but she's sort of acting in that way as sort of part of American, um, I, I, I'm loath to say imperial power at this moment. But in, in that structure, right, of the post-war years... And but she 's working directly with refugees, and she begins to help the historical commission she does translations from yiddish, so all the activities that make her will make her a fine historian later, and particularly the idea that the voices of the victims themselves must be heard already is in that 's happening in these it 's a nascent form of that training, and she 's also interestingly in the british zone um of post-war Germany, where the refugees from the Exodus are disembarked, and she actually chooses not to write about that in her autobiography, which is raises very interesting questions. She ends her autobiography with the rescue and salvaging of Jewish cultural treasures that belong to the YIVO and to the libraries of Vilna and their shipment back to New York, which is going to create the repository of archival riches now in New York from East European Jewish past. And she is seminally important in that activity. So all of this is, is the first two parts of the book. Part one, be an American. Part two, becoming a European. That's how I write the book. Part one is, you know, American immigrant daughter. And two is to Europe. But then she comes home in 1947 and marries soon thereafter. And then I, the next section of the book, part three, I call Becoming an American. Even though, of course, she holds an American passport, but she becomes an American. Now, why do I say that? Because she goes to work for the American Jewish Committee. The American Jewish Committee was one of, um, after the JDC, one of the most important Jewish advocacy agencies in the United States. But it was founded by Jews of Central and German culture. It is an organization that is denationalizes with a lowercase n the Jewish experience. They view Jews as a religion. And this was part of the modernization of German Jews in 19th century Europe, where you have the beginning of the separation of church and state, a slow, steady process, finally a political emancipation in German lands in 1871. And Jews of German origin or German descent do not view their Jewishness in ethnic uh, secular terms or not what we in Eastern Europe would call a national term, right? They view it as a religion. Jews are a confession. They're nationally American and they're confessionally Jewish and we see this in France i mean I, there's a long history to this but that was the world that she inhabited and here she is an east european jew for whom jewishness is ethnic and cultural and yiddish speaking and civilizational if i can use it. I imagine she felt like a fish yeah i imagine she felt like a fish out of water
1: a little bit is she is she is she religious in that context Nancy, no. No, uh, no, that, no, no, that's no. it's a really hard thing to answer because she is insisting on the voices of, of Jewish people as a group. So does her right. modernization become a turn toward religion? Or only what is, later. What does the, evi- the evidence show for that?
2: Yeah, so it's only later. In terms of her own personal, like the most interior part of her life, she is disquieted, I would say, already in the interwar years by the assumption that secular Jewish life has a future. Because the evidence that she sees in Vilna, and we know this true of New York as well, you know, the Jewish immigrants who were secular, the next generation of children did not have the bedrock of secularism that they did. And the obstacles to integration, at least in the New York diaspora, are much lower and um, Yiddish language is being assimilated into English in the American context. In Poland, Jews are polonizing linguistically, right? So the future, Max Weinreich already, everyone is aware that the children, you know, if you're a Jewish kid in 1938, you may or may not really know Yiddish. You're probably going to, you could be going to a school that's, instruction isn't Polish. So um, so the question of the viability of the secularist project based in Yiddish language and culture for the Jewish future is already um, thoughtful people I would say are examining that and thoughtful people that she cares about, particularly Zelik Kalmanovich and someone named Lema Schler. So she's, I would say, disquieted by the assumption that the Jewish future has can be guaranteed, if you will, Jewish groupness can be guaranteed through secularism. But she's not, quote, religious. She's has not been raised in a home with religious ritual. It is uncomfortable to her. She says that very clearly in her autobiography, or her memoir. And her husband, remember, is really a card-carrying socialist. So for him, it's very difficult. Um, her, what will later be her movement towards um, certain aspects of religious life. right? So part of being at the American Jewish Committee and this issue of religion is that the American Jewish Committee is a foot soldier in the construction of Cold War liberalism and the fight against what is perceived as which is real atheistic totalitarianism, right? So the Soviet Union is not only the enemy because it's anti-democratic, right? It's the enemy because it's a language that's faithless. So the American Jewish Committee, in fighting this Cold War, cultural Cold War, is going to emphasize the religiousness of Jews, which fits in with the American fabric of group identity. So I imagine that Lucy Davidovich is absorbing all of this, even if it's quite unfamiliar to her. She's not someone who, who, from her background, would have associated Jewish religion as the defining feature of what Jews should do and be. But she's in an institution where that's how Jewish groupness is understood. And it's understood as being harmonious with American liberalism. So um, the American Jewish Committee is involved with fighting the fight for the separation of church and state because they believe that religion is something that people should do, the state should not do it. But America allows it to flourish. So that's what they support. And she's doing a lot of the research on the court cases in the 50s that are church state court cases, which have to do with release time, federal funding for textbooks, um, school vouchers, many issues that we see playing out today are being negotiated in the courts already in the 50s in the context of the Cold War. So this is really, where again, where I argue she becomes an American because she supports the separation of church and state but is beginning to identify religion as a marker of group identity and the necessity of Jews to pay more attention to supporting religious life, which is antithetical to her secularist background. She's also a fierce anti-communist, which she already was, after her youthful dalliance with the Young Communist League, the Moscow trials seem to have, you know, expelled her <laughs> or propelled her out of that. And then living in Vilna, living in Vilna with people who had fled the Soviet Union, she just hates the Bolsheviks and 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 also believes that Bolshevism and universalist uh, ideology doesn't allow for Jewish distinctiveness. So she is an anti-communist, and she's also very involved with the American Jewish Committee's civil rights agenda, which is extremely powerful um, and very important. Um, The whole idea of intergroup relations, that America will be good for Jewish integration if Jews fight on the behalf of other minority groups. This is a um, uh, fundamental component of the American Jewish Committee in those years, and it's only towards the mid to late 60s where people begin to ask, whether or, not, whether or not the fight for civil rights is in the long-term interests of Jewish group identity. And that's part of what is the last part of my book, which is her, um, where she brings her East European groupness to the American political landscape, and they don't meet very well
0: together. The- this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat>
1: So so that, yeah. So that's where I, where I really um, want to talk about a lot of the relationships that she had and, and the network that she had within the New York community, especially um, because at one point in your book, I, I found this fascinating. Um, you describe her as an intellectual tomboy. So there is this process of professionalization for her. When Holocaust history really takes off through the 1960s and 1970s, she is becoming a professional woman, and at the same time, she's also a professional woman who shuns slogans like in the 1970s, the personal as the political. Um, and in her relationships, I don't know. I correct me if I'm wrong, but I see almost like concentric circles to her life. Like there is, an, there is an inner circle of friends where she cares about them dearly. And then there's kind of like an outer circle of intellectuals and, 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 and intellectual acquaintances, some of whom are allowed into her, her innermost circles. Can you talk about then her, her relationships as you see them through her writings, her letters, and, and maybe what, what changed about them through the 60s and 70s?
2: Well, first of all, I really want to. Th- I want to thank you for that question because I think, um, in a way, if, that que- if I had posed that question the way you just did, which I want to again give a shout out for it, I wonder. I wonder if the book would look different. Um, so that's interesting to me to think about that, like the, the road I didn't take, so to speak. Um, I, I think these relationships are extremely important to her, but I didn't really write a book about it. It's more implicit than explicit. Um, but I think she, but I think you're 100 percent right is that t- certainly from the mid-'60s until her death, or, or, or particularly after the death of her husband, he dies in 1979, her intimate circle becomes smaller, right? Her intimate circle becomes smaller. There are people whom she trusts, and she's a wonderful friend too. I mean, I've, I did interview people, and people talked about what, what an incredible friend she was, if you were beloved by her. And then there are the associates, and then there's the world. Um, the bigger world, and the bigger, you know, the bigger world in the late '60s, early '70s, becomes a world that she thinks is uh, deeply problematic. So she's so critical of the New Left, critical of the counterculture, critical of feminism, critical of the perception that the academy is taken over, being taken over by what was then they didn't call it political correctness, but an agenda of grievances. So these things are she's displeased with those things, and they uh, lead. To again a sort of inwardness and also a right her right wing shift right to defending you know the the sort of the good old days of sort of meritocracy and universalism and a canon and things like this so um, I, I think your insight about that is is right on I I would say that um, her relation she her relationships she she seeks in some ways male. Uh, father figures throughout her life although she has some very close female friends I don't want to say she doesn't but the men the men in her life were were the the father figures who were extremely important so her father she was closer to her father than to her mother but it she had a difficult relationship with her mother but her father a closer relationship and I think he was more, she mourned him more. But when I think about her whole life, she was extremely attached to Max Weinreich. She was extremely attached to Yakov Shatsky. She was extremely attached to Leibish Lehrer. Extremely attached to Zela Kalmanovic in Vilna. Um, and then after the war, she marries her husband. Again, he's 20 years older than she is, so she marries Shimon Davidovich. Again, an older Jewish man of East European um, origin. And then at the American Jewish Committee, she befriends and becomes very close to Milton Himmelfarb, a very important uh, uh, writer uh, and researcher uh, at the committee. Norman Podharitz, who is the editor of Commentary Magazine, which in its heyday was an extremely important um, magazine of Jewish culture, life, and politics, and she wrote lots and lots. She wrote over 50 articles for commentary. She gets to know the sociologist, Marshall Sclare, very important to her in terms of introducing her to thinking about American Jews and sociology. Um, all of these men are extremely important to her, and then as she moves towards a more conservative or a religiously inflected or observant or inflected life, certain rabbinic figures. Um, Well, Abraham Joshua Heschel, by the way, whom she knew as a refugee who was involved with the YIVO and Yiddish when he first came to this country, later becomes not only a civil rights activist but an instructor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Heschel is very, very important. But she also becomes very close to someone named David Mursky, to Gerson Cohen. David Mursky is at Yeshiva University, employs her to start teaching the first courses in 1969, what later became courses on the Holocaust. Um, Dave Mursky is very important to her. Gerson Cohen is the chancellor of the Jewish theological seminary, Rabbi Saul Berman, Rabbi Harlan Wexler. So she, throughout her life, I think she's looking for certain kinds of father figures and those relationships shape her and she chooses them. You know, she chooses people whom she respects, but she does have a cohort of female friends. So I don't want to dismiss that. Um, she has a lifelong friendship with a British doctor whom she met in the DP camps. Someone named Pearl Ketcher, extremely interesting woman who lost her husband to natural causes, but during World War II, Pearl um, emigrates from uh, after working in the DP camps to to uh, Mandatory Palestine, and then lives in Israel her whole life. Her brother Moshe is a journalist. Her no- another bro- brother starts the Israeli Press Agency. So these are sort of founding founding individuals. Pearl and Lucy are lifelong friends. I have, you know, scores of letters between them, and she she also becomes friendly with uh, sort of an important group of what I would say um, female uh, writers, who tend towards the right right wing perspective: Cynthia Ozick, Ruth Weiss, uh, Joanna Kaplan, um, Norma Rosen. Jewish writers who are writing about the Jewish experience, writing about America, um, and they're not public intellectuals because they're literary figures. And they are sort of her inner and Francine Clagsbrunn, very important, Francine Clagsbrunn. These are these are relationships that are very important to her. So um I I hope I addressed your question about these relationships.
1: Yeah, let's 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 talk a little bit about um, her work. So it, I think the relationships are extraordinary. And I'm very glad for our listeners here on New Books Network that, that Wayne State University Press published the letters. There is a magnificent appendix in your book, um, including correspondences, which are, are remarkable, including like with Albert Einstein. Um, so you know, for future researchers who are um, looking into everything uh, that she wrote, aside from the autobiography, that that's that's excellent. I think that's wonderful for, for both students and and for researchers. Um, I do want to ask about Holocaust history and historiography, and this this really is, you know, about her belligerence and 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 her writing with commentary and and maybe steadfastness could be the right word. Stodginess has a bit of a negative connotation, but, but, you know, I I mean, she does through the seventies and, and especially when she becomes involved in the creation of the U S Holocaust Memorial museum, have a number of very important quarrels Um, with Holocaust historians. So how, how does your reading of her earlier life becoming European and becoming an American then dovetail with her later reputation as a, as a Holocaust historian and historiographer of a particular school?
2: Um, Well, I think it's, you know, it's all, I, I, it's all of a piece, you know, this is the risk one runs as, as a historian, right? Do we see contradictions or do we see seamlessness, you know? And, Sometimes I think it's temperamental, right? Um, certain scholars see, you know, always see um, the fissures, and others see um, coherence. Um, I, you know, I guess guilty is charged. I, I tend to see uh, coherence in in Lucy uh, Davidovich's case. I think the best way to understand her, and I've I've have a chapter coming out um, t- entitled this way. I call her Dubnov's other daughter. And by Dubnov's other daughter, I mean Shimon Dubnov's other daughter. So Shimon Dubnov was a, a the great uh, Russian Jewish historian of the 19th century who um, famously charged the Jewish people to collect their own sources, to write their own history, to um, consider history their birthright. And he saw history writing as part of um, national uh, collective identity. And... That that was the way to ensure um, some kind of gr- again this word groupness, which is not such a great word, but I'm so loath to use the word nationalism, particularly because you know this, Stephen, as an as an um, East Europeanist, it doesn't mean what it always means in our contemporary no, it
1: doesn't. context. I, I think of Brubaker's work on groupism, right. you know, and, and the unmixing of nations. It really does have a negative right. Context, so we, but it, 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 it does signify belonging, right. right? So
2: and people seem to forget in the 19th century, particularly for. What I call ethnic linguistic, um, well, I call the Jews an ethnic linguistic urban majority in Eastern Europe, right? But groupness, fighting for it was part of uh, uh, a different pathway to state building, and it, and we all know, we all know this. We all we Eastern Europeanists know this. So I mean, so and Dubnov is a liberal. He's a liberal politically. He actually has great. Um, he has great hope for what's going to be the playing out of Jewish history in Eastern Europe, which is why he stays. I mean, Dubnov could have left and he stays. And, and then tragically he's murdered in the ghetto of Riga at the age of 80. So, I mean, he's, he's the great example of, a, of a, um, a devoted liberal and a devoted modern Jewish nationalist with a lowercase n and who had utter faith in the possibility of the diaspora and utter faith in the possibility of Jewish collective identity. And that's, that's what motivates her. That's what she does as an historian. And I think that that's that's where we, looking back, you know, people say, well, should we read her books now? You know, "What, what do they teach me about the Holocaust? Well, I still think they teach, one, facts, things about the Holocaust. But I think more importantly, they teach us what it was like in her moment to write a history of the Holocaust that included the voices of the victims, you know, we take it for granted now. I mean, now you know we've kind of gone full circle, where we think testimonies are authentic. Well, I don't need to tell you that after the war, most people working on on the destruction of the Jews thought testimonies were too selective, or they were biased, or they were problematic. I mean, I have a colleague. I have a colleague who is a really fine historian who wrote, you know, an article about the, one of the survivors of Babi Yar, the the, the Two-day massacre, three-day massacre of the Jews at kiev 33,000 Jews were mowed down. Dina Prochnerheva, I don't want to get her name wrong, survives. She gave her testimony 12 times, their contradictions. So the question is, you know, how legitimate is it? From my own perspective, she may have, in this case, the testimony may have made some mistakes here and there, but certain things are consistent in the testimony, and therefore we should take as fact, quote-unquote. So Lucy Davidovich, very much influenced by Dubnov, Influenced by the historian Philip Friedman, who I haven't mentioned here, and I should. He's a survivor historian, extremely important, although they tangled personally. You know, he survives um, in, in Western Ukraine and goes on to be involved with the historical commissions in the DP camps. And then he emigrates from Eastern Europe to New York and works with Selah Boron, also a very important historical figure for Lucy Davidovich. Um, They all, uh, Philip Friedman argued for writing history of the Holocaust from the perspective of the victims using Jewish sources, what he called Judeo-centric sources. And this is in contrast to some of the more famous books that are being published in the 50s and 60s. Um, And not to disparage them, but they have a different project. And I'm thinking of Raoul Hilberg's The Destruction of, of the European Jews, which, by the way, Lucy Davidovich thought was an excellent book for what it was trying to do.
1: In I was surprised by that. Right. I it really was. right? Yeah. But she
2: resents um, when he reissues it. Her problem is his reissue. So that book has a long and storied history. Hannah Arendt, by the way, was the reader on the book and gave it the kibosh. That itself is a fascinating story. But when you think of Hilberg, Hilberg is a painstaking, meticulous, I guess, uh, extremely thorough investigation of what we would call the Nazi machine of death, right? That's what he does. Millions and millions of archives that he looked at. But he's interested in the perpetrator. What? How does a modern state do what it did, right? And he does it in an extraordinary way before anyone else did. I, I,
1: do ha- I do have to ask, Nancy, I wonder with Holocaust historiography, because she died in 1990, how she would have read some of the major works in the, in the 90s and 2000s. So how she would have responded, let's say, to Browning, Christopher Browning, or to um, Goldhagen or to Jan Tomasz Gross. How How do you think she would have reacted to that?
2: Well, to Browning, we actually have um, evidence. And I, you know, partly because I'm not an historian of the Holocaust. It may seem strange. That's really not what I am. I mean, I did deal with, I did deal with her in the book. I do treat her Holocaust historiography, but I treat it as she's the American link in this Dubnovian tradition. And so I speak about The Golden Tradition, her first book, which is autobiographies and excerpts of Jewish first-person accounts, Jewish culture, as her representing Eastern European Jewry. That's what I call that chapter. And then I talk about the war against the Jews, 1933 to 1945, her major work. I call that defending Polish Jewry. So I I would argue that there's a, you know, she has a a bias. I mean, we all do. But her, her project is to commemorate the East European Jewish past, to tell it. What the civilization was like. She wants it to be a usable past for diasporic Jews, particularly American Jews who know nothing of the great civilization. That is, I think, what she's setting out to do. And I talk about her that way. You know, she reads, I think she reads his dissertation or she reads the manuscript, and she doesn't, she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. And I would, I, to be fair to me and to be fair to her, I would have to sort of revisit it, and it would be something to talk about. At another time for me to think about, but she doesn't like it. Um, About Goldhagen, I I am—I say in my epilogue what I I do ask the question: What's the what's the relevance of her intentionalism—a word that we haven't used here—her intentionalist view that the Holocaust, you cannot understand the Holocaust and the destruction of the Jews of Europe unless you understand the. tenacity of modern anti-Jewish hatred, anti-Semitism, which is embedded, she believes, in Nazi ideology from the get-go and in Hitler from the get-go. She believes that ideas and men in power are some of the most significant, if not the most significant, motors of history. So she rejects structuralist or what was then called functionalist views of the unfolding of the war and of the final solution. So for her ideology is what one needs to look at. And therefore you look at Mein Kampf and you look at the prophecy in 1939. And even if there isn't a smoking gun that says, we're going to round up Jews and kill them, you know, you know, just, you know, and have them dig their own graves from her perspective, that is embedded in the anathematization, the kind of rhetoric uh, that's already there. So that's what, that's what she would say is that, you know, you couldn't have a Holocaust without anti-Semitism. And I just want to say for her, you know, she knows there's a conventional war going on. She understands that, but she's writing about the war against the Jews. And her point is that while the Germans, uh, you know, prosecuted a so-called imperialist war, whatever you want to call it, a war against the Soviets after they were no longer friends with them. But nonetheless, an, uh, there's an ongoing war against the Jews, which was deliberate, systematic, and ideologically driven, and that's where she stands. So I actually say that Goldhagen, you know, owes her, you know, owes her something, even though his perspective is different. But that's kind of where he comes down. I mean, he goes, you know, he he says the whole society is anti-Semitic, and I actually think Saul Friedlander, who I revere, I mean. Partly because I read his memoir when I was sixteen, I still thought it was just marvelous. But you know, his newest books on the Holocaust combine perpetrator history and and the voices of the victims, and he also emphasizes the centrality of antisemitism and he emphasizes the Christianity of it all, which she does, which again was not in favor, not uh, privileged in the seventies and eighties. You know, it was the idea that the modern German state was secular, and there was a juggernaut of bureaucratic formation, and they were fighting the Soviets, and it was an imperial war and there was Lebensraum. But really, do we, should we rethink Lutheranism? Well, actually, today people are rethinking Lutheranism. They're thinking about its embeddedness. So I think um, even if her craft of the 1970s doesn't meet our standards archivally today, doesn't meet our linguistic standards, you know, all look, the field has grown and and we have archival um, access in ways that we didn't, whether it's digital or in situ. But I think she asked some of the more important questions, and I would argue that many younger scholars or even older scholars, Yehuda Bauer, I'm thinking of just recently, kind of said there could be no Holocaust without anti-Semitism. This is Yehuda Bauer, and he ta- tussled with her. So what I want to say is, I think she asked the right questions, and the fact is, is that she was dismissed for a lot of reasons. One was gender, the other was she lacked a PhD. The third was, and you know, so to t- to make sure people read my book, she lacked what I called sexual agency. She was an East European Jewish woman, barely five feet tall, who taught at a Jewish college, and that is not what gets you on the front page. Although the war against the Jews was reviewed on the front page of the Times, but that's not what got gets you on the front page of academic institutions today.
1: Yeah. And do you see as a last very short question um, when you talk in the, toward the end of your book about her urgency or advocacy um, urging Jews to join the Republican Party? Um, I mean, how, how do you treat that like as a sort of legacy for the present? This it, Can you describe well, that? Her, I,
2: that I don't. That yeah. I don't. I, 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 I punt here a little bit because she died in 1990. And I think one of the questions is this movement called neoconservatism had a certain shape um, in in the crisis of the democratic party you know under carter and then with reagan and you know the, the the big question is do we do we look at that and say they led to the bush doctrine and does did that lead to our contemporary republican president who i actually don't think is a republican i really don't he happens to be at the head of the republican party but that's because the republican party in my view wants to hang their whatever onto his whatever, I don't even want to go there, actually. But neoconservatism of her day was essentially Democrats who felt burned by the by the Democratic Party. And that had to do with the new left, with the perception of violence, with the attack on civil institutions that had been so fundamental to Jewish integration. The press, the academy, um, uh, you know, voting, things like this, which uh, the English language, the canon, these things which were had been the handholds for the integration of immigrant Jews into the mainstream. Those things came under the attack uh, during the new left, the counterculture or the radical civil rights movement. And that's what burned her. And, you know, specifically the rhetoric of anti-Semitism and the rhetoric, the anti-Israel rhetoric that um, glorified the violence of the PLO back in the day. These things made her run scared. Um, and that's what made those neoconservatives run scared. And exactly, I don't know where she would be today. I, I don't think it's my place. I I don't think her political, um, views are, are a legacy. I, I end my book with her legacy to Yiddish, if you will. Um, she spends the last five years of her life raising money for the translation of Jewish literature and I will uh, tell you that just this year, the great memoir of Glickel, 17th century uh, Ashkenazic woman from who lived in the city of Hamlin in German lands, that great memoir that we have, which we never had a good English translation, was recently issued in English based on a fantastic scientific bilingual Hebrew Yiddish version. And the funds for the translation of Glickel's memoirs were provided in part by Lucy Davidovich's Fund for the Translation of Jewish Literature. So I guess that's the part of her legacy that I think is very worth holding on to.
1: Yeah, and and that's a remarkable tradition that that I wish in some ways that it would be in your title, Lucy Davidovich Yiddishist, because it it is such an integral part of her identity. Um, So we've been talking with Nancy Sinkoff, who uh, is a professor at Rutgers University. I'd like to give you a chance to answer our, our traditional question here on New Books Network. So uh, takeaway points of the book, hopes for your listeners, and what you're working on right now.
2: Well, I think the biggest takeaway, which probably, um, uh, well, not the biggest takeaway. One of the things I want people to take away with is that Jewish history is long. And, um, I mean, all history is long. We, that's historians, we go backwards. But that the historian of the modern period um, at his or her peril, ignores, if you will, the long Jewish past. So this is, the book is an homage, if you will, to a certain method of studying history, which is la longue durée. And I'm very grateful, although it took a long time and my training was long, that I was trained by people who believe that, that if you want to study, in this case, Jewish history, you are best served by investigating and exploring and examining its long, long past, and it will give you the tools to understand seemingly, you know, unrelated phenomenon of the modern period. So that's sort of, I guess, a methodological takeaway. Um, but it's so important to me because part of the book is a challenge to the perspective that Jewish politics must be liberal. Um, whatever, I believe about American politics, or what I hope for for this democratic nation, is one thing. But as an historian, it would be dishonest and, frankly, bad history if I or anyone else were to assert that there's only one Jewish politics, and the idea that there's a Jewish political tradition is bad history. Uh, we need con- you always need context, and to ask the question about how did Jews behave politically, what were what were their avenues for political negotiation strategies, movements, parties, ballot box, or none of the above? so you know that's a takeaway sort of again as a large you know a big takeaway. People need to think more in a more sophisticated way about the way that we perceive Jews and politics. so if they see movement of certain groups of Jews to one way or they interrogate the politics of the modern state of Israel. There's nothing un-Jewish about those things. They may be politics you disagree with, but not on the grounds that they're not Jewish, because there's no essentialized Jewish politics. So that was, that was important to me. It is important to me. Um, uh, what's the other takeaway? <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, archival history is the best, but you better be prepared for a long <laughs> haul. <laughs> better be prepared for a long haul because you don't know what you're going to find in the archives. And if you're like me, you go down a lot of rabbit holes. It's
1: just what, what I do. And, and that seems to be... The, the perfect sort of moment in our, you know, post-truth universe to insist that people go back and read the documents and read them in all of the languages and all, all of the places, especially if you have a biography. Um, I want to thank Nancy Sinkoff for joining us today. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel on the New Books Network here at new books in Eastern European studies. Uh, Nancy Sinkoff is professor of history at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and she is the author of, of what I would call the most comprehensive and, and, I think, fascinating intellectual biography I have read. Uh, it is called From Left to Right, Lucy S. Davidovich, The New York Intellectuals and the Politics of Jewish History, uh, published by Wayne State University Press in 2000. 20 I want to thank you and congratulate you on the book today
2: thanks so much I'm very pleased I have to say an unusual posture for me but yes I'm pleased thank you so much